Welcome to Basecamp, where men join together to seek deeper understanding of authentic menhood and apply principles from God's Word to our daily lives. If you're looking for the next level in men's ministry, join us and experience a life of Christian fellowship with men sold out for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May God be praised. Okay, Acts. 18 and 19. It's two whole chapters. We're going to cover every verse in detail, so prepare. No, we're actually going to go a little bit quicker this morning. So I want to ask you guys a question. What endures in life? What endures in your life? What endures in life is together. Last time we talked about idols, things like cell phones or pornography and everything. What endures? Can anyone recognize in one word, what what comes to your mind when you see this picture? One word. Egypt. What else? Pyramid. What else? What well, camels? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. This is one of the seven wonders of the world, right? Okay. This is a picture taken sometime about 1943. This is a picture of my uncle. He assisted surgeons on a hospital ship, and uh, they stopped over on the Nile as they were taking care of wounded in North Africa, and so. This is a picture that always fascinated me when I was a little boy. We always had lots of military people in my family, and I always looked at their pictures, and I was just enthralled by it. And I said, I want to go there, and I want to visit it, and I really want to be there. I wanted to go there with my mom. Unfortunately, it never worked out that we could go there together. Uh, But I ended up going there with my wife. And being so fascinated by this picture, I wanted to go inside of it because I thought this is something that lasted forever. Well, unfortunately, when you get inside the Great Pyramid, uh, the Great Pyramid of uh, Khufu, there's another one, Cheops as well, uh, these were meant, essentially, they think of it as, a, as just a funerary mausoleum. This was an engine. This was an Egyptian engine to bring someone to the afterlife, to the resurrection. It took tens of thousands of people employed on a, a basis over 20 years. And when you get to the center of it, and you crawl, and you face the butt of a French tourist that's in front of you as they're squirreling through these wormholes because you're going through this hole that criminals had cut out centuries ago. And you get to the sarcophagus, and I'm there with my wife. You find that the sarcophagus is, in fact, empty. There are a few inscriptions. In fact, there's almost nothing inside <clears throat> except bat guano that you can smell. And it's very hot. And as you're one of the few people that are crammed and wedged in here, you look at the, the, uh, the sarcophagus as someone dolefully takes a picture and then you hand them money. That's what's the, the inside of the seventh wonder of the world, this maze of tunnels that you go in. It is nothing. It is nothing today. I want you guys to keep that in mind. Next slide, please. Okay. Paul in Corinth and Paul <clears throat> in Ephesus. So, 18 and 19. We're going to cover these as if they are one. Okay? So these are the five W's. Okay? Five W's. In short, you can read them there. Okay? Paul of Tarsus. He evangelizes. Okay? The year period is somewhere between 51 A.D. and 56 A.D. So it is a period of time when the Emperor Claudius uh, is in charge, if you will. And there are several people that you're going to meet here, these cast of characters that would have been around in the Roman Empire. These are two really critical cities. Why is he there? Well, he's there simply for the reasoning uh, persuasively about God and revealing the way. Okay? You guys ever watch Mandalorian? Mando on Disney? Okay, it's awesome if you guys haven't seen it. But they, they keep talking about the way. In a way, 
very closely related, that's what it was like. Because they didn't sit around and talk about, well, what are Christians going to do? No one called them Christians up to that point. Some people did, uh, but very few. Next slide. So, the journey. The journey to Corinth. So, I'm going to pull out some little notes here. And as you guys take a look at this, I want you to think about for a moment, I want you to think about when you were trapped in a car and you may have been with your wife and she told you to ask directions and you were embarrassed to do so as I have been there many, many times. Well, could you imagine reading a map like this? So this is called the Tabula Pentugenaria. This is a, essentially a Roman road map. It was for the Cursos Romanos or the Roman roads. And the little red lines that you can kind of see tacking through there all of those represented the mileage that you would travel. So this is a literal map laid out in a two-dimensional world where essentially it is flat and you are going from point A to point B and they are measuring it. In this Corsos Romanos map, the center portion here that you see where I've got my green stars where Corinth is, but that little portion, that's the Peloponnese. Looks like this odd blob fish connected to the bottom of the land. The Peloponnese is obviously this significant geographical fixture here, but the map itself would have been really long and it would have rolled out on the floor. And where I've kind of detailed here is the red inset. Okay? When Paul went here okay, from Athens, it wasn't a relatively long journey. This would have been a journey he could have done by land or by sea. We believe that in this one he went overland essentially from Athens to Corinth. Corinth faced both sides in two gulfs, if you will. So it was often called Bimeris, which was the two seas that it would straddle on either side. Next slide. Okay, what did, what, did, uh, what did Corinth look like? Well, actually Corinth at the time was this amazing city. Okay, Corinth, whereas Athens may have had 10,000 people at the time, Corinth had about 500,000. Think about that for a minute. Okay, 500,000 crammed within a walled city. Okay. So what is the strategy that we have here? So you guys got it in front of you and then we've got it up here on the slide. I underlined a few things that I think made up part of Paul's strategy. I think Paul was absolutely brilliant. Paul went to two of the most important cities in the known world at that time around the Mediterranean basin. <clears throat> so what's underlined? Athens, Corinth, Pontus. So he met this Jew named Aquila and Aquila's wife Priscilla. Pontus is the portion that connects part of the Dardanelles in what we call Asia Minor or Turkey today to Europe. So they were in this area that had this vast connectivity of trade, these intersecting points. Okay? And then Paul went to see them because he was a tent maker as they were. This is going to be key. He stayed and worked with them. And on every Sabbath, every Shabbat, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now at this time in the synagogue, things were combined. People actually, there were just probably as many Gentiles in the synagogue as there were Jews. These would have been people that would have been interested in becoming Jewish but had not yet made the step. Okay, I'm sure there were many factors in that. Maybe it was the kosher food. Um, I'm, a, I'm a weak person. I would probably tend to think if you were an adult male uh, in your 20s and someone was like, yeah, exactly. And they were like, uh, hey, you're going to have to be circumcised. You're like, what? Thank you very much. You know, So just think about that for a moment. Next slide. So, if we're looking at some of the things that are key that I think get to the strategy point, why? Corinth is a commercial tra uh, trading center. Uh, so I got a note from Jack Law, and he had a great quote in here, uh, and I think this is from Stott. 
If trade could radiate from Corinth in all directions, so could the gospel. And then Ephesus as well. Ephesus is a commercial, this religio-political significance in the Temple of Artemis. We're going to get to that in a minute. But I want to concentrate on tent making. So I've got three pictures up here. At the top is just a picture referencing the fact that you are dealing with a society that's based heavily in animal husbandry. So a lot of the people that they are manufacturing these goods for, although probably a quarter of the people lived in the cities, a quarter of the rest of the people lived uh, essentially as a, a nomadic way of life operating out of the cities as a, a basis. They would have operated in things like a caravansai, which is essentially like a huddled place where you could bring your animals, you could pen them up overnight as you continued to move to these fertile grounds. The other half of the people, so I talked about the first two quarters, one that lived in the city, one that did animal husbandry, were essentially farmers that were out in the hinterland here. All of them needed tents because all of them had some temporary move back and forth. So what did Paul do? He made tents. And a lot of the pieces of the letters, particularly of, and you're just going to see the relevant amount. I mean, the guy of the 27 books in the New Testament wrote like, I think like more than half of them, 13 or 14, something to that effect. So as he's making his tents, he's preaching about the glory of Jesus Christ. He's preaching about these things in this environment, in this workshop environment. And I also want to point out here that middle, that middle slide there is uh, from an, a Renaissance work. And so you can kind of gauge from that, you know, Paul and the people that he's meeting, they have a halo around him. Unfortunately, Paul may not have sold a lot of tents because they were very tall. I mean, I don't know how you get that halo into each tent you know, as he's making them and stuff like that. But uh, I tried to find a picture of probably what it looked like when he was with Priscilla and Aquila. And probably in that lower picture would have probably reflected the reality of the situation. Next slide. Okay. So, this is not all the happiest time in the world when he's in Corinth because there are struggles. He's facing this very highly educated, arrogant, if you will, Jewish community uh, and Gentile community who live in this robust urban metropolitan. And uh, essentially, he gets kind of down. He gets down at a couple of points, but one of them must have been key because Luke thought it was important to actually put inside the gospel. And that was the fact that he had had a visit from Jesus. And Jesus said to him, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. When I read that, it kind of reminded me of something that you read in Isaiah 41.10. And in 41.10 it begins, So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Luke was on a mission to record Paul's acts, if you will, and to describe this messianic mission. Because Paul wasn't describing a new religion. What Paul was describing was the messianic revelation of Christ to a community who very much resisted him at first, then took him on, and it seemed to prosper, and he had to leave that community. And then he returned back when the community was in crisis. Several times Paul finds himself in the midst of great crisis, and I think that's what Luke is trying to convey in part of this. And then we'll get to some of the darker stuff here in a minute. Next slide. Okay, the scope and scale. Don't pay attention to all the words. Look at the words that I underlined, the scope and the scale of it. This guy, in the period of time, again, we're talking from 51 to 56. 
Remember, there's no motorized transportation, no planes, no motorized boats, okay? The only thing he's got is his two leather personnel carriers, his LPCs, okay? And maybe the fact that he can get in a boat that's hauling wine or olive oil or something from one point to another in this vast trade work. Corinth, Syria, Ephesus. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. A pattern that you'll see in each one of these readings. Ephesus again, Caesarea, Jerusalem, Antioch. This all happens in this space. And in fact, scholars had a difficult time determining when he did this. And we're going to get to that point and again, but we come to this over and over. Paul was amazing. Paul used the network of the Roman roads and the Roman system, the interconnectedness of trade in this Greco-Roman world to great advantage. And Paul also had one critical advantage overall. Paul was a polyglot. Paul could speak multiple languages. Okay, who remembers what Julius Caesar said as he was being stabbed to death? Et tu, Brute. That's in Latin. It is highly likely that instead of saying et tu, Brute, he said it in Greek. Kaisu technon! And you, my son? Because the koina, the Greek koina, was actually the lingua franca, not only of trade, but among the elites. Paul could transfer to that language just as easily as he could to Aramaic, as he could to Hebrew, and back and forth. And he probably learned some other languages around the way, because remember he came from Cilicia, this portion in the southeastern corner of Turkey that was essentially this place where trade passed back and forth. Next slide. So he goes to Ephesus. Here again is this tabula map. Now, in the tabula map that you see here, this large thing that looks like two dragon's heads coming out on either side, Ephesus is essentially on a portion of Turkey. Okay? And Ephesus sits out there today. It would have been called, in, th in those times, essentially the province of Asia. So to the north of it, you can see some other provinces that you probably have heard, like Bithynia and Galatia, these other books. This was a very, very important money-making province in the Roman Empire. It had been conquered three times. And that's because the fact that every time the Romans conquered it, they would get driven back. The first time they conquered it was about 200 years before Paul arrived. Okay? And then at that time, the Roman Empire at the time was really, really at that time, the Republic, had fought against a guy called Jugurtha. And then there was another guy uh, that they had, this, uh, this king in Bithynia, who came down and basically wiped out the Romans. He wiped them out. In fact, the Roman soldiers took refuge, we learn, in the Temple of Artemis in, uh, in ancient history. But Paul traveled great distances to spread his message. Next slide. He picked a key place in, Corinth, or in Ephesus. When he goes to Ephesus, he arrives there. Ephesus is, is both a political and a religious uh, center. But one of the most important things for Ephesus that you see there, to kind of get the context of it, was this temple of Artemis. The Greek letters up there, I'm, I do not speak Greek, but I think they mean the Artemisian. The Artemisian, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus combined. Well, this temple is one of the seven wonders of the world. It's supposed to be one of the most spectacular buildings in the ancient world in terms of scope and scale and size. Okay, And in the interior of it, is, in my opinion, this absolutely grotesque statue of this woman with about a hundred breasts. Okay? Artemis, you know, I mean, who, who worships a statue like that? I mean, honestly, come on, guys. You know? But anyways, that, that, was, that was what they did. 
This in the pantheon of Greek gods, Artemis, Diana, and Rome, uh, essentially was the goddess of the hunt, but also the goddess of fertility. And so this was something that would have manufactured, there would have been a business around Artemis. There would have been a business around manufacturing these idols that were for Artemis. And so we're going to learn soon about a guild of silversmiths who revolt against Paul. But you can see there that beautiful temple. Is it enduring though? Next slide. So, what happens when Paul's there? Well, the point that I want you to take away here from all things today is that Paul was accused by his own Jewish community. Paul would have proudly said he was a Jew, as we are all in this room, one way or another, Jews of the Christian faith. Okay? I want you to think about this for a moment. Paul was accused by his own Jewish community. So he had gone to the synagogues, he had reasoned with them, he had preached with them, and he got inside, and these guys were like, Hey man, we don't agree with you. And you know what? We're so angry, we are going to go out and we are going to speak against you. So they basically denounce him, which in those days was a pretty serious crime. And Paul, although Luke does not write it in here, it is highly likely that, that uh, Paul was actually imprisoned. He was probably imprisoned for a period of time. A Roman prison or a prison in any province at this time was not a great place. This wasn't a place where you were you were essentially prisoned because you were sentenced there. Prison was like a holding pen where you went before your trial. Okay? And basically, the state did not provide any largest say to feed the prisoners. You know, like the old scene where the guy's coming out with a bucket and the mush and, you know, he's like pouring the water and stuff like that. Or if you've seen the movie Papillon, don't watch Papillon too many times. But uh, there's a line in there that will we'll go nameless. But essentially, those prisons were largest sea of the state. In Paul's day, the prison essentially was, you showed up there, you were imprisoned, you were chained up to a wall. Sometimes you were allowed just to roam around your cell with other prisoners. But then it were the people, that you, your friends, your family members, were responsible to come and feed you. Your family members were responsible to come and treat your wounds, to talk to the jailer, to coordinate a time to come in. That's where Luke worked in some of those prison systems, if you will. So it was very different than our own way. So Paul was essentially in prison. And they took him before the proconsul Gallio. How do we know Gallio? Well, Gallio is actually a person that we have in history. And this is what I want to get to the legitimacy of it. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio, who's a proconsul, said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves a question about words and names and your own law, remember, Paul was in the synagogues preaching about Jesus as the Messiah, about this revelation. And he was probably doing a normal routine pattern. Exodus, Abraham, Moses, uh, Isaiah. And then Isaiah from there and the prophecies and talking about that. And then attaching it to the one true God that has come. Basically that Jesus has come. There wasn't a discussion of the Trinity. That time the Trinity, that, that whole concept had not fully come into being at the time. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Why did Gallio show no concern whatsoever? Because he was beating a Roman citizen. So I want to read to you very briefly what a proconsul is. Okay? A proconsul, uh, how many military guys we got in the audience? A whole ton of hand, former military guys. In short, a proconsul is like a combatant commander. He is sent out there and he is called a proconsul. Now, the governorship of a province was apprised 
that only went to men doing well in a republic's fiercely competitive public life. By this time, magistrates, like Gallio that you can read about here, the most important went to the former consuls with the title of Imperium, Proconsularium. Former praetors sometimes received this title, but were allegated the less important provinces. Any command was an honorable distinction, and in some cases, there was an opportunity to win military glory, while all offered the chance of profit, most of all for the unscrupulous. By the middle of the first century, bribery was rife in elections, the candidates trying to outspend each other and purchase the support of voters, trusting to a provincial command to restore their finances. Now, this was written, what I just read to you was a passage, uh, for a great book, Adrian Goldsworthy, if you ever want to get it, uh, Pax Romana, who writes a number of books about Roman history. This one is actually talking about, about 70 years before Paul arrived in Ephesus. But the same would apply to Gallio. Although that was in the Republican period, little changed when he went to the Imperium. When during the Imperium in this period of time, remember this would have been the Julio-Claudian dynasty, going all the way back to Caesar and ending at the death of Nero in 68 AD and beginning this tumultuous period in Roman history. Gallio was a consul. Gallio was a Roman-appointed official. Gallio would have written down that he tried Paul. Gallio would have recorded it. And Gallio, by his inaction, basically saying to the Jews, just as Pontius Pilate had said to the crowd when they shouted Barabbas, he basically said, this is your matter. It's not mine. But in doing so, he legitimizes the messianic branch of Judaism that we come today to call Christianity. It is at this moment when Paul is out there and he's preaching to them and he's talking to them that basically it comes to this point. Next slide. Now, it's a dark time for Paul, as I mentioned. He was in a prison. So I've already kind of covered this part. I'm going to skip over this one. Next slide. The riot. The action itself, as we learn, it causes a riot. There is a riot inside. This is, in my opinion, one of the great, as Stott calls it, set pieces in the Gospel of, uh, in, the, in, in Acts itself. And, uh, and I think Luke describes it very well. He's a beautiful writer. I want to highlight the bottom portion. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Have you ever been in an audience like that or a crowd? I have a couple of times. It's absolutely hilarious. Someone doesn't know. I went somewhere to this NATO summit and there was all these people protesting and stuff like this. They were like, I hate NATO. I hate NATO. We're like, well, why do you hate NATO? I don't know. I hate NATO. You know, they, they, they don't know. They got whipped up in the fury of the crowd. So the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. So if you can imagine, they find this other Jew who Paul has listened to and Paul has discussed and, and, and kind of had this back and forth discussion inside the synagogues. And they're like, Alexander, get up front. And so Alexander comes out in front of this crowd and he tries to calm them. But then when they realize he's a Jew, these guildsmen, these people who are manufacturing these statues of the idol, these people who are heavily indebted into this business, they all shout in unison for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It probably went something like this, great is Ephesian Artemis. Great is Ephesian Artemis. They were so obsessed by this fact. And we know that a clerk comes out, a city clerk, who quieted the crowd. And he said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know 
how great basically Ephesus is. And he goes on to say that you have brought these men here, but they have neither robbed the temples or blasphemed the goddess. And he goes on. Basically, he's saying, you know, if you got something, bring it to the courts. There are proconsuls for this. They can press charges. But if there is anything further that you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it were, we were in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In the case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he said this, he dismissed the assembly. Luke leaves out a number of things that probably happened here. He was probably actually, to be frank, he's probably embarrassed that Paul was in prison. Because if you notice, he talks about Paul's beating and suffering and stuff like that, but he often doesn't mention the accusation thing. Remember, Luke was part of the elite of this Greco-Roman world. And so to, be, to have Paul, someone that he traced and uh, uh, placed so much trust and, and confidence in him, was probably a downer for him. So he kind of glides over that. He talks about the really important pieces. But this was a really dark time for Paul. And we know this because he wrote a letter in there, particular many letters, but one of them that survives is 2 Corinthians. Next slide. So, what endures today? What endures today? We talked about this at the very beginning. And the inset picture is this beautiful temple of Artemis. This is what you got today. It's a pile of rubble. It's a bunch of ruins. What survives today? The gospel. Next slide. Why did the gospel survive? Anecdote. Not related to the topic we're talking about directly, but just as important, if you will, is what Paul did. Paul carried some precious cargo with you. And there's a lot of things we talk about and what Paul said and what Paul did. But right there, encapsulated in a few small objects, reflects what allowed Paul, with Jesus in his heart, to go around and spread this and commune this to the world. He would have carried a stylus with him, essentially a, a, a panel book, if you will, that was wood that would have been filled with wax, and he would add a stylus. And he would have probably originally written these things in wax first, and then he would have transferred them to papyrus afterwards. That thing is like a copy memo, if you will, because he wants to make sure that he gets the words right. And we know he was probably a beautiful writer, and we know that Luke was probably an even more eloquent writer. But they carried around these stylus, they carried around papyrus, and they also carried an oil lamp. As I mentioned before, of the 27 books of the New Testament, 13 or 14 are traditionally attributed to Paul. He wrote these, a lot of these, under great duress and under awful circumstances. Uh, seven of the what they call the Pauline epistles are accepted as being entirely authentic or dictated by Paul himself. The other authorship is, is more debated. Contemporary authors followed later. Subsequent authors likely used material that Paul had talked about as kind of, you know, these shaping statements or lines and then group them together into text. What endures? What endures is the gospel. Next slide. These are the discussion questions. You can read them up there. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and give back the, the balance of the time for table discussion. And thank you very much.